All right, I'd better begin with a thank you. Thank you so much for uh, your commitment to partner with us in support. Uh, it's just such a blessing to have the body of Christ right here in the Ottawa Valley um, support our burden, which the Lord has laid on our hearts. And um, thank you, Pastor Matt. I got to remember the pastor part there because he's always been Matt to me. Um, just thank you so much for your ongoing support and friendship. Um, right now, we're basically living in a little town called Beechburg. It's on the other side of Renfrew from here. And for the next, as long as it takes, we are basically traveling around and making contacts and raising support to go to Peru. We will be living in Lima, and the focus of my ministry there is going to be in uh, leadership development. So uh, primarily through teaching at a seminary, training uh, men how to handle the Word of God and to be pastors of the church plants. There is an exploding evangelistic outreach right in Lima and throughout Peru, but what is whole Holding the church plants back are trained individuals to go and to break the word of God. Uh, it's kind of startling right now. There's about 2.2 million evangelical churches in the world. Can you imagine that? 85% of them do not have a trained pastor to lead them, someone trained in the word of God. And so around the world, this is uh, such a need to keep the, the church grounded in the um, doctrines of the scripture. And so um, that's going to be really my emphasis. And my wife will be, of course, going with me. And uh, her ministry is going to focus at a, a crisis pregnancy center there in Lima and in basically helping share the gospel with ladies of need that come into that center, discipling them and uh, just seeing the, the different families that are touched by that ministry change for the glory of God. So again, as Pastor Matt mentioned, um, we have a sign-up sheet at the back if you're interested in getting our kind of bi-monthly uh, newsletter. We give an update of our prayer needs in that, and that's what we are really um, looking for at this time. And uh, we also have some prayer cards back there as well. Well, that's enough about us. We want to get into the Word of God together. So if you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19. I was already told this morning that this is someone's favorite psalm. So the pressure's on. I should have had her come and preach for me. But she can take over once I bomb this, okay? So... We'll be in Psalm 19, and as we turn there, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we have in many ways already sung the intent of this psalm, which is to see us not giving you uh, glory through our words for your great creation that's around us, but also to be changed by your word, to be glorifiers of you. And so just as we allow this uh, scripture to penetrate our hearts, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come alongside this ministry of the word and that you would move in our hearts, that you would uh, apply it just how it needs to be applied, the individual touch to each one here, that you would bring encouragement, that you would bring conviction where it's needed, and that each of us would be um, ready to do what we need to as we leave this place to glorify you this week. Help us to remember that it's, it's not just about the, our great time of worship here together, but all, all about what we're doing everywhere we go in our thoughts and in our words and in our conduct. And I pray that we would each glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So it was a rainy day, and a uh, young man was walking along the street. He looked up at the top of this 15-story building. He saw an old man kind of leaning out over the edge, and he was convinced, oh, no, he has some bad intentions here. He's not just kind of looking out at the view. So he got into the building, and he ran up the 15 flights of stairs and was, you know, catching his breath, and he went out onto the roof, and he said, stop, don't do it, just as the man was putting his foot out over the edge and kind of startled. He fell back onto the roof, thankfully, uh, turned around and looked at this young man and the young man said, don't go through with it. Whatever it is, just come, sit down, tell me what's going on. Tell me the, the issue um, that is you know, burdening your heart today. And so they sat down together and this um, older gentleman bared his burdens to this young man. He, he shared all of the injustices which he had faced throughout life. All of the different times where just things didn't seem to be working out for him. And at the end of their conversation, as it concluded, they grasped hands, they walked to the edge of the roof, and they jumped off together. <laughs> Despair. <laughs> Depression. Losing the meaning in life, okay? To, in, all of us, to different extents and in different ways, experience this at some point throughout our lives. This is why our world seeks so hard to fill the void in the soul of man. This is human reality. This is something that each and every person faces in one way or another. Find your own purpose. Discover your own way. Uh, figure out what you need to be doing with your life. Craft a dream, then go for it. This is the advice that the world is continually feeding in order to fill this void within mankind. This is the advice that's broadcast into our homes through media. This is the advice sometimes, unfortunately, we even pass on to one another. But an adamant interjection must be kind of brought to this worldview. For those who have come to the conclusion that we are not an accident, to those who have come to the conclusion that we are in fact created by an almighty creator, and I admit maybe you're not there today, and that's fine. You just come along the journey with us this morning as we look into God's word and see God's perspective on the purpose of mankind. But for those that have come to the conclusion that there is a creator who created you, we must then follow through with that conclusion that the sole purpose of our lives has to be wrapped up in what that creator has for us. All of the other advice has to be put to the side and we have to focus in on what God has told us we are here for. We must only seek and will only find our purpose in what our Creator has for us. And I'd like to draw our attention to a masterful little scripture here in Psalm 19, not just for its artistry and theology, but also just for its central purpose here. It's centered around the purpose which God instilled in mankind, which we've been singing about already. Giving glory to God. And there is a, a movement throughout this psalm, beginning with this declaration of what the heavens and really all the universe around us is doing, 
And then the psalmist moves along to the point where he has this, this plea, this vow by the end of the psalm where he says, that's what I want my life to be like, to be giving glory to God. And so my hope is that we might move in our lives from recognizing God's glory to being glorifiers of God. You may have noticed that the Psalms are laid out a little different in our Bibles, most of our Bibles anyways, than if you, for instance, open up 1 Kings. 1 Kings narrative, what are Psalms? Well, they are poetry. And here, can we get to the Psalm 8 there? Something interesting about this poetry is that it's a little different than a rhyming type of poetry or of the many kinds of English poetry. It's all based on something called parallelism. And this is going to be important for us to understand what's going on within this psalm. So basically there's going to be a line, not necessarily a verse, but a line that is laid out. And the first part makes a statement. It makes a claim. And then the second part somehow furthers that. It adds to it. It intensifies it. It gives the result of that first claim. It elaborates a little more. And so uh, we could, for instance, take Psalm 8 and verse number 4 for an example of this, where we read, What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? See how this line is broken into two parts? The first makes this statement, What is man that you are mindful of him? Talking about mankind. And, and it's kind of a psalm of wonderment where God is saying, or where the psalmist is saying of God, Isn't it amazing? that you pay attention to this insignificant thing called man. And then the second part of this line furthers it and says, not only that, but the Son of Man, talking about an individual human being, not only pays attention, but cares for the individual human being. See how the second part of the line builds on, it furthers, it intensifies the first statement there? So this is what we're going to watch for as we go into Psalm number 19. And we look down in the first verse where we're called to observe God's glory. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. So again, notice the parallelism. Heavens and sky are parallel. It's talking about the same thing. The expanse that is out there. As you look out and maybe have to get out of the city into kind of a, a dark zone where there's not so much light pollution and you see the Milky Way and the stars. Why are they there? They are there to give God glory. It says in the first part, they declare the glory of God. His handiwork is parallel to this glory of God in the second part. And so it's saying, it's all there. What is His handiwork supposed to do? Bring him glory. That's why it's there. That's why it's created. And it is inherent in something that is made to give glory to its creator in one way or another. I have um, a son over here, Titus, that really enjoys doing art and crafts. And once in a while, he'll bring me something from school that he created, and he'll show it to me. And what am I expected to do? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Throw it out. That's what, no, I never do that, Titus. I never throw them out. We have them all stored up. 
he brings it to me, not just so that I can appreciate the art, but that I can appreciate him. He's the artist. He deserves the praise for what has been created. And this is some, just such a basic principle that we must recognize within creation. Look in verse number two. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. And so here, pointing to the continuous nature of this glory being declared. It says it pours out. The emphasis is just that this keeps on going day to day. So all day, every day. Second part, all night, every night, this is what is going on. It says um, it reveals knowledge. So again, considering our parallelism, what kind of speech is being poured out? Well, of knowledge. This is the type of speech. This is the, the, the type of revelation. True knowledge is attainable. Verse 3, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. And this is trying to convey something that's a little difficult for us to, to grasp, to get our minds around. But basically the, basically the idea that there's no voice being declared by the heavens. And yet, it, the heavens still are able to declare the glory of God. There's no voice, meaning there's no human communication, no human language coming forth from these. And yet, they're still shouting out interesting, just a, a, a lot of um, different poetic devices and irony being brought together within this psalm. So there's no speech, there's no human canation, yet, verse 4, their voice goes out through all the earth. Hear the emphasis that it's universal. It's everywhere. Verse 2, it never stops. Verse 3 and 4, it's everywhere, even though not using human communication. It's always going on, and it's inescapable. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. No matter where you're from, no matter where you were born, no matter where you live, whether you live in the city, out of the city, in an apartment, in a house, it doesn't matter. Everywhere we go, there are visible signs of the glory of God in His creation around us. That which can't speak, speaks. So, so far we have this non-verbal declaration which is revealed every day in the world around us. It's continually going forward everywhere for all mankind to see. And it points to the glory of God. And uh, theologians in their way of categorizing things refer to this as general revelation, okay? It's a general revelation. It's there for all to see right before our eyes. Now, if we go to the New Testament, Paul draws an implication of this general, this universal revelation in Romans chapter 1. And there in verse 18 through 20, he says... For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. And so 
as the Apostle Paul brings application of God's general revelation, he says that the reason that mankind has no excuse at judgment is because everyone has the opportunity to receive or reject this general universal revelation that's all around us. So there's no excuse. The implication of this universal revelation right here within the psalm, though, is that all of God's handiwork is there for one express purpose. What is it? To give glory to God. Okay, this is simple. This is great. There's nothing complicated um, here as we unfold this psalm. The psalmist David then goes on into a particular example of God's general revelation. So he's talking broadly about all the universe. Now he focuses in on the sun and its circuit. And he says here, in them, at the end of verse 4, in them he has set a tent for the sun, a dwelling place for the sun is the idea, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Now, we might have to stop here and have a little bit of a cultural context and understand what in the world is this talking about. Um, let's just put it this way. The wedding ceremony and all that was involved was done much differently in the ancient Near East than it is today. Um, how many of you as husbands waited for your bride to show up? Maybe they're a little late, okay? You're, don't worry, this isn't going to jeopardize your marriage. You're well, far too much into it by now. Maybe a lot of you forget. <laughs> You're not getting off that easy, okay? You can call her on it. If she was a little late, uh, yeah, it happens. Uh, last summer, I was at a, a wedding with uh, my wife, and we were attending, and it was actually at Lindock, a little white church, no air conditioning. It was on the hottest day in June, and... 45 minutes we waited for the bride to show up. Everyone was up there sweating. The pastor had to get everyone to stand up and like fan themselves off after half an hour. Um, the groom was up at the altar sweating the most, kind of, you know, wondering what's going on. Why is my bride not showing up? And eventually she showed up and, you know, went on with the proceedings. They got hitched. No big deal. Let me just tell you, though, Back in David's time when he's writing this psalm, that's not how the marriage ceremony took place. Who waited for who? You guys are so afraid to say it, aren't you? <laughs> the bride had to wait for the groom. I'm not making a statement that this is the way it should be. I'm not. It's just an observation that that's what happened. That's what took place in that time, okay? So I'm not making any sort of gender stereotype here. This is just the way it was. And this is the cultural context that David is drawing on when he's describing the circuit of the sun. Okay, so here is this picture of this bridegroom coming to his bride. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have texting. There was no notification system for when the groom was going to show up. The bride and the bridal party waited and waited and waited. And maybe the, the groom was out, you know, finishing some sort of a hunting trip. Maybe he was finishing the harvest. Maybe he was gathering the last of the dowry so that it would work out and, you know, everything would be fine and legal. There are all kinds of reasons that the groom might be held up. Often, he was building onto his father's house the extra room so that he could move his bride back into his father's house with him so they'd have a nice little bridal suite there. 
the bride, the bridal party, had no idea necessarily when the groom was going to show up. See, this is the same cultural background that Jesus draws on when he gives a parable about the, the bridal party having to have oil in their lamps, waiting for the groom, because they don't know when he's going to show up. And they're really just a picture that the people of God have to be ready, because we don't know when Jesus might return. Uh, it's the same kind of imagery that is even in uh, the book of John, the Gospel of John, where Jesus is recorded saying, I go to prepare a place for you. He's going to prepare a place. This is what would happen within their culture as the groom prepared a place to bring his bride. All of this within that imagery. Now here in this verse, now that we understand the, the background a little better, the picture then is of this groom kind of bursting forth. He can't wait to go get his bride. And here comes the sun. Nothing's holding it back. Here it comes on its circuit. You can count on it, can't you? To the point where we can predict when sunrise is, uh, when sunset is, nothing is going to hold it back. And here the psalmist is saying, that should give us cause to glorify God every single day. We have the anticipation of the coming forth of the sun in the morning, which is to be celebrated. God has built opportunity for rejoicing into every day for us. Um, this morning, I, when I was up, I was up with our youngest, Lucas, and I opened up the curtains, and it was just at sunrise, and he goes over to the window. I don't know why he got into this, but he says, Hi, God. <laughs> Does it at sunset? He sees a rainbow or whatever. He says, Hi, God. And, okay, that's good. Yes, that's the idea. Not that God is the sunrise, no. Hopefully he will develop his theology as he goes on and realize, no, we can celebrate God. We can see God's handiwork in everything around us. And we have reason to celebrate every day, even those kind of days, even the worst of days. There is reason around us to glorify God. Uh, the end of verse 5, like a strong man runs its course with joy, so, uh, kind of like a warrior ready to race out into battle, or we might say like a racehorse. It's at its gate. It's just waiting to be released, and then boom, it's time, and the sun goes forth reliably every day for the glory of God. Verse 6, its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. Just talking about that it comes up and it goes back down in its circuit. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. It's amazing, even now as with you know, modern science, how we understand how there's a, a life zone, a life as we know it zone in distance from the sun. How the earth is in a pretty good spot for having life on it because of its distance from the sun. Um, it was last summer, there was a, a pretty big eclipse on the west coast. We were in Washington state, our family was visiting Elisa's family. And in Washington it was about a 90% eclipse. And uh, as we were outside and as the, the moon passed between the sun and the earth, there was a noticeable cool of a few degrees, just as if it had of, you know, gone night over that minute or whatever it was. And then as the sun, as the moon passed through the, the, the rays of the sun, then it, you notice the, the morning continued to warm up. And I'm not sure the delay of, of the heat and all that, but you could notice it, that it was somewhat cooler. And, and we realized 
God has built all of this perfectly. And we should be giving him glory when we observe it. So the subject up to this point has been the heavens, the universe. They are described several ways. And now notice the shift here from this universal general revelation that is everywhere that we should all be observing and giving God glory for to the particular, the special, the unique revelation, the revelation of God's word. And in this movement of the psalm, it brings us along and it is in a sense signaling to us that observing God's glory is not enough. No, we need his word in us to change us, that we might be glorifiers of God as well. Be changed for God's glory. The first few verses lay out why the the Word of God is irreplaceable in its necessity to make us into glorifiers of God. Notice in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Now, a law here is talking about his instruction generally. It's not talking about the laws in the scripture. It's not talking about the section of scripture, which is the law, the first five books of the Old Testament. It's just used very broadly here to refer to God's instruction. His instruction, his law, it is perfect. It is without defect. Isn't that great to know? We have an inerrant word of God. We have a word of God here that isn't going to lead us wrong. Try to find advice anywhere else that isn't going to lead you wrong once in a while, even if it's it's from a trusted person. But notice in the parallelism here, it gives this characteristic of the word of God, and then the second part gives the effect. It says, reviving the soul. Reviving the soul. Soul here, the inner self. It includes the thinking, the feeling. God's word restores the inner person, we might simply put it. While creation demonstrates the glory of God, it doesn't save anyone. There is enough revelation in creation, the universal revelation, for people to accept or reject, and ultimately for mankind to turn their back on and be damned. But there is not enough revelation in who God is for a person to be saved by observing creation. What is needed? The gospel, the good news, the word of God itself. And so this verse in many ways is hinting at that fact. It is the word of God that revives the soul, that brings new life to the inner person, that fixes all of those problems. And in a sense, here's appeal for why We all need to be missionaries, don't we? Absolutely we do, wherever God calls you to. Maybe it will be uh, be to some cross-cultural or foreign field. Maybe it will be right where you are to continue in your line of work, right in your family even. But this is why. Because it's the Word of God that revives the soul, that brings conviction and conversion. As we read again in Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This is what the Word of God does. This is its business. It revives the soul. It's the oral or written truth proclaimed. Even as Romans 10 tells us, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then? 
will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Our feet, our mouths in service to our Creator and King by declaring His goodness and the grace that we have available through Christ Jesus and what He's done for each one of us on the cross. We must support, we must pray for, we must be involved in God's global mission for His glory. That's what it's all about. As we read on, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So we hear the testimony focusing in on the content of God's Word. It's sure. It's trustworthy. You can rely on it. You can depend on it. It won't steer you wrong. Making wise the simple. So now here the effect. Uh, it, it was in verse, uh, beginning of verse 7, the soul. Now it is kind of the mind. Makes wise the simple. Simple here is pointing to the naive. Okay, those who think they know what they understand and think they know what they're talking about, but they're naive and they don't understand what truth is. And I, I think this is sadly ironic that many people right around us in the city, many people anywhere you go, if you're sitting in a church on a Sunday morning, they're pointing as they drive by and saying, look at those naive people in there. <laughs> those naive people that believe that, that need a God to believe in as a crutch to get through life, that actually believe that the Scripture is the Word of God. Uh, see, it, it's complete opposite, but the Word of God, this is what it does. It is able to enlighten, as we're about to read, that we realize this is the truth. And we hope that in your journey of faith, you're in a place where you're coming to realize that this is actually the Word of God, that it is reliable, that you can lean on it, that you can trust it. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And so here the, these precepts, they are, they are upright, they are true. They ought to make our hearts rejoice. Now it's interesting, in Psalm 104, the same phrase, rejoicing the heart, is talked about wine, okay? So maybe if you need a little picture of what the Word of God ought to do to you, here, here it is. You, rejoicing of the heart is how the Word of God ought to, to move within us. In a sense, it, it, we're being told here, it should not just artificially pick us up. No, it should bring true joy as we submit to it and live by it and follow it as it does its work and ministry in us. It says here, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And here, even as the end of verse 7, focus on the mind, here it's more the understanding, enlightening of the eyes, giving understanding. So verse 7 and 8 are, are revealing what the special revelation of God is, what its characteristics are, and how it ought to affect us. And we could almost stop there and just adjust our point of view of the Word of God. It's not just something to be munched on once in a while when the pastor breaks it open for us on a Sunday morning. No, this, this is 
those who are following God, this is our lifeblood. This is how he continues to cultivate us into his glory, changed into the image of his own son, how we become glorifiers of God, getting this in us. Let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, it says in Colossians. So we have its character we have this, this explanation that it is really the ultimate self-help book, but not for what we necessarily want, for everything God wants in us. And as we move on to verse 9, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Notice in verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Okay, so this verse is in here for all that are in pursuit as a central part of your life after financial gain or business success, okay? That's why this verse is here. Also, for all of you that are foodies, that are more obsessed about your diet than most things in life, or love a good meal over anything else. What are we to desire most? The Word of God. We should be able to pass up on money to have time in the Word of God. We should be able to pass up on a meal to have time in the Word of God. That's the desire that we're drawn to here, that we're called to here. I love a good meal. I mean, to look at me, you might not be able to tell that. I was just <laughs> genetically gifted. I can eat whatever I want, and it doesn't really matter. One of my favorites is Mexican, and uh, quite honestly, one of my favorite restaurants is La Bonita right here in Ottawa, so a little shout out there. I get in there, and the, the music, oh, it's so good. Where are you going for lunch today? We'll only be another hour or so. so. The decor, once in a while they'll have an old Spanish uh, black and white movie playing with a projector screen on the back wall. I don't know if they still do that. It's been a while since I've been there. They come over and I get this and I love this. And what do I do? I start exegeting. I'm good at it. I start looking through and interpreting. Ooh, what's in this dish? Ooh, I want to ask about that. Mmm, oh. And my appetite, my hunger drives me to really get interested in what's on that sheet of paper. Anyone relate to that? Anyone want to know exactly the ingredients and everything so you know exactly what you want to choose? We can't afford everything or we'd buy it all. No, we have to narrow it down and, and choose what we're going to eat. And as perfect as that meal can be for my personal tastes, you know what? It isn't near the value or the attraction or the richness that we are to get from the Word of God. And, and I know for myself it sometimes speaks of my fleshly appetites that we are willing to spend more time figuring out what we're going to eat for supper than we are interested in being in the Word of God that can do all of these things we've just read about in our lives, turning us into glorifiers for Him. We can't worship the food. We can't worship the money. Here, gold was the highest standard in that um, culture, and it really, in many ways, still is the highest standard. Guess what? They couldn't go and get you know, some nice uh, uh, white sugar and put it on whatever they want to eat. They couldn't go to Krispy Kreme and get a donut. No, 
this natural source, honey, was the, the sweetest, most savory thing that they could ever have. So it, it's saying the best that those worlds have to offer shouldn't compare to our opinion and our appetite for the Word of God. I mean, we can, again, stop here and be so convicted. Where is the value of the Word of God in your life? Then we move in verse number 11 to the correcting process necessary for us to be glorifiers of God. So what's necessary? The Word of God. How does it work? Through this correcting process. Now we move on to the great personal benefits that we receive upon consuming God's Word. It says in verse 11, Moreover, by them your, uh, is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Verse 12, who can discern his errors? Errors here specifically pointing to inadvertent sins. Okay, everyone once in a while does something wrong and they didn't know it was wrong. Okay, can we allow that? Once in a while you offend someone inadvertently. Maybe it's even a, a cultural or language, linguistic misunderstanding. Oops, we say the th wrong thing, we do the wrong thing. Maybe I've already offended you this morning with something I've said. It was inadvertent, trust me. The Word of God, it says, it helps us identify and correct those kind of inadvertent errors. And then it goes another level here, and it says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. This is pointing to the secret sins. They're not hidden to me. I know all about them. They're hidden to you. You can't see these sins. These are our deepest, darkest sins that we keep in our closet and don't tell anyone about. And the Word of God, as we get into it, it starts to drag those out. And it starts to reveal them and expose them for what they are. And that makes us uncomfortable. So we close the Word of God and we put it away and it gets dusty somewhere. But this is what the Word of God does. And this is how we become glorifiers of God. It reveals those to us. And by God's grace, this is why He sent Christ, his son, to die on the cross for our sins, that we can repent and be forgiven by his grace of even whatever those sins might be. And then in verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Okay, so see these three types of, of sins being characterized here? Presumptuous are the willful sins, the things you know you shouldn't do, and you go ahead and do them anyways. You're in traffic, okay? You're in an argument, okay? These type of sins and the things we think and do and say. The Word of God is there for us in those to convict us and to move a place where we, to a place where we will repent and be, uh, have these removed from us. It says, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Not talking about a great big sin, but a great many transgressions. This, the, the Word of God doesn't stop in reproving us while we're here on this earth. We're not perfect. We're not glorified. We're not completed into the image of Christ yet. And so this process is continual throughout your walk with God in this earth. We have the, just the absolute necessity of the Word of God in our lives to change us into Christ's image that we might be glorifiers. We have here in the end of the, this uh, psalm, these verse 11, 12, and 13, this correcting process that's, that is necessary. Is it, 
fun? Is it enjoyable? Not when we're in the hot seat. No, this is something no one likes to have things pointed out that how, how we're doing them wrong or that it is unjust in God's eyes. But this is a necessary process in our lives. How did the psalm begin? The heavens declaring the glory of God. How does this psalm end? Verse 14, the psalmist making this plea and this vow. I can't decide which it is. He, he's asking. He's wanting. He's, in a sense, making a vow here, but you can almost tell here he's leaning on God's strength to do this. He says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And for me, this is a prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. In a sense, this encapsulates the entire psalm. Let the words of my mouth, this is what was going on through verses 1 through 6, our words praising God for his creation. We've done that together this morning as we sang some of these uh, uh, great songs of worship, right? But is it enough for it to just be something that's coming out of our mouth? No. It can't be just there. It can't stop there. It has to actually proceed from the inner person, from the heart. And that's why here the, the, the last part of this psalm focuses on the word of God's ministry to the inner man and so that the meditation of my heart may also be acceptable in your sight. Sometimes I think we think, oh, I have to please God not just with my words, but even my thoughts. Let's switch that backwards and think about it this way. I not only can glorify God with my words, I can even glorify Him with my thoughts. That is a great opportunity. That is something unique of, of mankind that God has implanted His image in us. We can glorify Him with our very thoughts. Have a conversation with God anytime, anywhere. You know, I had prepared a nice, uh, cute little story about a time when uh, my family was flying out west and we ran into all these problems. Um, we, we hit a bird and it went through the engine. We had to have an emergency landing. We were stuck in the airport with three kids for 11 hours. My day went on and on and on. And the bottom line was, I got on that plane in the middle of the night after being in the airport all day and Although I was keeping my mouth under control, my heart was not in the right place. And guess what verse God brought to my mind? What? Yeah, this one right here. <laughs> I was going to go with that story. <laughs> but there's been something else in my heart recently. And uh, it's a, a very different uh, perspective. And it's kind of personal, so I'll try to get through it without making a fool of myself here. But um, uh, last December... Uh, my father had a stroke. He, uh, he's kind of my mentor and my main um, role model in my life. He had a, a stroke. He survived it. It affected the left side <coughs> excuse me, um, of his body. He was recovering from that. And then in July, he kind of had a, a freak accident and has a compression fracture in his back. He broke his back. Uh, one of the vertebrae was completely crushed. And they kind of hoped that in seven weeks, he'd be healing from that. Um, there was really no progress. The pain was actually getting worse. He's 
was being heavily medicated and that was really tearing his body apart. He went from a guy that was 10 pounds more than me to probably a guy that's 30 pounds lighter than me right now. Um, and so they decided they had to do back surgery. So last Thursday, not this past week, but the week before Thanksgiving, he was in Sunnybrook Hospital in Toronto for a back surgery. Um, they found that there was a mass behind his spine that was probably causing the weakness there in the first place. So they removed that and are doing a, a biopsy on that to make sure it's not cancer. Um, they put bolts and all this stuff and concrete. And I don't know, they fixed up his back. He was supposed to be discharged in a couple of days. The pain wasn't going away. They couldn't discharge him. Um, he was having and is still having intense back spasms where he either passes out or just kind of stays conscious and gets through them even though he's heavily medicated. So last weekend, it's hard for me to say this in front of my kids. <laughs> last weekend, we were at my um, parents for Thanksgiving and, <clears throat> sorry, I did this at my church all the time. They knew me as the guy that always cried. I try not to do this. I try not to do this with people that don't know me. Um, but anyways, that's not in my control right now. <laughs> um, so I spent Saturday um, visiting my dad in the hospital there and just watching him writhe in pain. Um, morphine, nothing would touch it. It just continued to be pain in his back. And um, anyways, a long story short, sitting there by his bed for hours on the, the Sunday kind of visiting him and having nothing I can do, could do to alleviate his pain, seeing him kind of you know, shriveled and fading away in front of me, uh, I think that that, even more than those little times of frustration in our, <coughs> excuse me, in our lives that test us and we spout off and say things we shouldn't say and, and we're challenged on the inside, I think those type of times I've come to realize are even harder to follow this verse. I can keep control of my mouth and, and when the nurse doesn't show up when they're supposed to to help him with his pain, I cannot say anything mean to that nurse because I know they're doing their best and I can respect that. But the inner conflict, the uh, frustration, the, the pain that's there that's, that's kind of just crushing when you can't help, I think that that's where I'm most challenged with. And so again, I come to this psalm, and I see this verse that says, yes, keep my words in check, but not just that. Glorify God with the meditation of your heart. And I have to come to realize that there's a sense in which as God the Father was most glorified in the obedience of His Son on the earth, so His Son our Christ Jesus is most glorified through the obedience of his people on this earth. And just as in God's plan of redemption, it brought him glory for our Lord Jesus to suffer, so as we keep our hearts close to God through our own suffering, it brings him glory. Knowing that my father's suffering can bring glory to God, makes it worth it. There is purpose to our lives. There is significance. There is fulfillment offered 
And it doesn't matter what station you're at in life. Great health, everything going well, everything going completely downhill, all the people around you suffering the most. It doesn't matter in the sense that we can still fulfill our purpose. We can still, because of what Christ did for us on the cross, bring glory to God. And so that's the first step, is trusting in Christ as our Savior, so that we can be redeemed, so that we can be ransomed from being enemies with God to being glorifiers of God. And this is where it begins, that we can say in any of life's circumstances, glory be to God. The second is our lifelong process of being changed by His Word and walking in obedience to His glory. Are our lives bringing Him the glory that they ought? Are we just spectators of His glory? Or have we arranged our lives in submission to His Word to be glory givers? I pray that this psalm will stay with you for a long time. I would even encourage you to memorize this verse 14. Um, not if you want uh, to get through life unscathed, but if you want to be changed for God's glory, this psalm, this verse, it'll come to mind quite often. Let me just close in a word of prayer. Lord God, you are so great. You are so mighty. There are no words that we can say, even with our human language, that do justice to the greatness of your glory. We see it all around us. Help us not to reject it. Help us to appreciate it. Help us to see it, and, and as we observe it, that it would move our lips to bring glory to you. May we not be quietly reveling, but be expressing our worship of you every day. May we see in every day an opportunity to bring glory to you. There are no wasted days for those who are your redeemed. Every day, even if by, by human standards we get nothing done, if we worship you, we have fulfilled our purpose here. And Lord, I pray that your word would do a great work in our hearts and never stop from the oldest, most mature Christian in this building to the youngest, newest, most uh, um, uh, growing Christian that there is here. I pray that we would turn to your word and lean on it and realize its character as laid out in the psalm and its necessity in our lives. And may we submit to it and be filled with it and be changed by it. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just be going through the motions, that rather like the psalmist David, we would get to the end of the psalm and say, I'm not satisfied following my own course. I want to observe and declare your glory. I want to be a glorifier of you. I want it to be my words, my conduct. I want it to be my heart, my thoughts. Lord God, I pray that you would do a work in each one of our lives here today. We pray this in Jesus' name.